Welcome to the first episode of From Lab to Life, a podcast series celebrating 20 years of Belbury. I'm Alison Rogers. This series takes us behind the scenes to hear the stories of people involved in medical research. In this first episode, Creating Difference, we meet Belbury CEO, Kylie Sproston, to understand more about this organisation. Kylie Sproston, Chief Executive Officer of Belbury Limited, Welcome to the first podcast from Lab to Life in this series. Today we're going to talk about Belbury and really unpack what this organisation does because uh, in some ways it really has been a silent achiever for the last 20 years and now it's time to talk more about some of the amazing things that have happened. For those that aren't familiar with Belbury, what is Belbury? Belberry is a private, independent, not-for-profit organisation. We exist with two simple objectives, to protect the welfare of human research participants and to improve the quality, efficiency and effectiveness of research. And effectively we do that by offering Australia's largest human research ethics review service, responsible for the oversight of more than a third of Australia's TGA registered clinical trials. And would it be fair to say that there's not really another model operating like this at the moment? That's correct, yeah, not in Australia. We're, we're the only institutionally, geographically, financially independent human research ethics service. This is a special year for Belbury. Tell us why. Um, this year, Belbury turns 20. Um, we were established here in South Australia back in 2004. Um, we've grown every year that we've been in operation and we're really proud to be achieving our 20th year um, and using this milestone, I guess, to share some of the stories and the achievements um, of Belberry and the Belberry community in that time. And when you start looking at the various bits and pieces that, that, that go to make up the, the sum of the whole, throughout this year, celebrating the 20th year of Belbury, we'll be hearing all sorts of stories from, from the range of people, the vast array of people that are involved with the organisation. But tell us a little bit about how Belbury first started. Give us the origin story of Belbury. And um, so Belbury started um, really as the result of a conversation between some privately based researchers. So there were a couple of groups of really passionate, engaged, privately based researchers who were keen to be able to offer research opportunities, clinical trial access as part of healthcare in their privately based clinics. Uh, if we look at some areas of health like oncology and um, cardiology, there are a number of areas of health where clinical research comes to offer a treatment pathway to patients who, who have no other options available to them. Um, and of course in Australia, half of healthcare thereabouts is delivered in the private sector. Um, and at the time, there was no easy pathway for HREC review for researchers based in the private sector or in independent clinics. Um, and so Belberry really came about as a result of a coincidental conversation raising that issue. 
Um, our founding chair, Fraser Bell, became aware of this conversation and um, was really the one to ask the question about, well, how else could this be done? At that time, HREC's had traditionally always been based within host institutions. So hospitals, universities, government departments would host an HREC and use that HREC to provide oversight for the research that they, they undertook. Um, but really that conversation then was about, well, how else could this be done? Can it be done as an independent service? And, and what would such an independent service like, look like? Now we started literally with a blank sheet of paper um, and it was from those conversations and, and, and really thinking critically about what might such a service look like if you're designing it from scratch. That's how Bellberry came about. So it was from those conversations that Bellberry was established as a not-for-profit, um, that we were established as an independent entity with our own independent board. Um, we started off with some seed funding um, from a research foundation and really a sense of let's design this you know, with um, an open mind as to best practice in offering human research ethics and oversight. Um, and let's see where this goes. And of course, here we are 20 years later. Um, the organisation has grown every year that we've been in operation by every metric, whether that's the number of studies reviewed, the number of meetings held, the number of people involved in our research reviews, the number of um, research users, but also then, of course, as a not-for-profit organisation, we take the proceeds from the Professional Human Research Ethics Review Service and reinvest that into philanthropic activities. And so, equally, our measures of donations and grants and impact through our philanthropy also indicate growth every year. And that, that growth that you're talking about, what do you put it down to? Why is it that, you know, the economy's been up and down, but why is it that Bellbury has steadily grown from 20 years, one committee, one human research ethics committee, to now, I think, we're up to 12? Correct, yes, 12 HRICs. So what do you think it is? Um, I think there's a, there's a few factors. First and foremost, Australia has a very strong reputation for research. And that's across the country and across the sector, really, whether we're looking at public, private, um, university-based or independently-based research. Australia is recognised as a good place to do research, resulting in data that can be trusted by regulators right the way around the world. Secondly, I think our growth really indicates the appetite for conducting research in the private and independent sectors. So having made the pathway openly available to researchers based in the private sector, we've seen really strong uptake. You know, clinicians um, and researchers are keen, they're curious, and they're interested to do this kind of work. Um, and so making the pathway available and, you know, supporting researchers to conduct research, we've really seen the market respond to that, um, I think. Thirdly, there is a global appetite. So two-thirds of the research that is reviewed by Bellberry is the result of international sponsor organisations placing research um, in the country. Again, I think there we see, having made the pathway available, we see the market response to it. And then, of course, I would say, from our perspective, we've focused on providing excellence in HREC review. We've focused on the quality of our service 
the quality of the HRAC decision making, the quality of the research office support to our researchers, um, the timeliness of the service as a whole. Um, and of course, I think that that also has been a factor in the growth of our service and, and certainly the expansion of the types of users that we see um, within the Belray portfolio now. And in some of those examples that you've just given, and I'm thinking particularly of the timeliness, that's actually set a bit of a benchmark across the country for the turnaround on, on human research ethics reviews, hasn't it? Um, yes, correct. So for the approximately third of clinical trials um, in Australia that is hosted here um, within Belberry HRECs, we achieve an average turnaround time of about 20 days. Alongside Australia's CTN pathway for clinical trials, that provides some of the fastest startup times in the world. Um, and that is also undoubtedly behind the international interest for placing trials in Australia. Um, in life sciences, you know, time is patent life. So if we can cut um, the, the turnaround time for an ethics review from three months to a month, that makes a big difference in terms of the startup time. But of course, also importantly, that makes a big difference to patients. You know, if you're an oncology patient who has progressed, whose cancer has progressed through um, the available, um, currently available treatments, there's a point at which a clinical trial might be the option for you going forward. And again, you may not have months to wait for that option. Um, wherever we can cut that time down is a good thing for patients too. What about a sceptic who might say, well, they're rushing it, they're not, they're not following the procedure properly if they're turning it around that quickly? That's a really great question. And I think, as I said from the start, we've really focused on the dual aspects, the quality of review and the, the timeliness of review. When I talk about turnaround, turnaround times, one of the important things that I'd stress is I'm talking about average times, not guaranteed times. We're always really clear with our researchers that um, a study will take as long as it takes to review. Um, and that's based on a whole series of factors. The most important is actually how ready it is for submission. Um, and that then, of course, comes back to the quality of the research office support that we can provide to researchers to make sure that studies are, are fully developed, that they're, they're actually kind of ready to be approved when they're actually put into the application process. And while we're talking about this, just the, the business model, essentially Belbury charges a fee for service for the review, which gets charged regardless of whether the particular submission is approved or not. Um, correct. So that really comes back um, to that point about uh, the fee for service is for the review process. It's for the quality of review and the timeliness of review. It's not for the decision. So the work is involved regardless of whether a study is approved or rejected um, and, and indeed regardless of how simple or complex the study is. Let's talk a little bit about you. You've been the CEO of Belbury since 2014. What was it that attracted you to the organisation and the role? Um, so I've spent my whole career in the life sciences sector. Um, it's a sector that I'm, I'm passionate about. Um, and, and I've had the privilege of kind of operating at various stages in the sector. I've worked you know, at the very um, kind of later stages, actually in manufacturing and global supply of, of drugs to patients. 
Um, I've worked with drugs, I've worked with um, small molecules and, and large molecule um, biologics. Um, and then in more recent years, I've actually moved into the clinical research space um, and, you know, the earlier stages of drug development. And when I came across Bellberry, there were a couple of things that struck me. One is, uh, firstly, that Bellberry really is this incredible community of fantastic people. And it's enormously exciting to work with a community of um, dedicated individuals that are as passionate as I am about drug development and, and making a difference. Secondly, really, we are incredibly privileged to have carriage of this portfolio of research um, that's based here in Australia, but that represents really innovation from around the world um, in terms of kind of current thinking about next breakthroughs, but actually, you know, the generation beyond that as well. And so, you know, it's incredibly exciting um, and a huge privilege to have responsibility and carriage of that portfolio and to be able to do so from, you know, this beautiful place in South Australia and to be making a difference. Give us a sense of the range and number of reviews that Belbury would undertake. And so in terms of range, I think initially our focus was very much on um, interventional clinical trials, primarily based in the private sector. But as the service has grown, we've seen um, diversity in both the types of studies and the types of sites. So now the types of sites is not just private and independent sites. We see sites within the portfolio from um, public, private, independent um, and academic sites um, across all phases from first in human right the way through to post-marketing surveillance with drugs, devices, biologics and indeed we see social and behavioural sciences as well. In terms of numbers, are you prepared to give us a sense of, of numbers that, the, that, that, you know, in the last few years, or give me a sense? Sure. I mean, we've ticked over 10,000 studies. We support more than 6,000 registered research users at more than 1,300 research sites across the country. Wow. Okay. So it's a lot. What about overseas? Tell me about, uh, you've referred a little bit to some of the things that are happening in terms of organisations that are interested in Belbury and its work, but how would you characterise the impact of Belbury internationally? Um, that's a great question. And actually, interestingly, if we go from those numbers, two thirds of that portfolio that we're responsible for is the result of international investment in research. So it's international sponsors bringing research into Australia. And I think what we see there is recognition, you know, with the recognition of the robust, responsible, high quality, time efficient pathway, we've really seen the research and development sector respond to that and, and that has certainly brought in and facilitated um, an, an enormous number of trials um, into the country. Um, so as I say, two thirds of research and, and on, an, on an annual basis, more than half of the new drugs approved by the largest regulators in the world have been seen by Bellberry committees and hosted by Australian researchers here. That's, that's quite a phenomenal statistic when you, when you think about it. Tell me about um, another aspect of Bellberry's work which makes it a really interesting organisation and, and that's the philanthropic work. 
that you undertake. You mentioned that there was a decision made that the organisation would be not for profit. How, how does that actually work and, and what are the outcomes of that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, as I said, that decision was not even early on. It was, you know, it was before foundation of Bellberry and it really goes back to that question that you asked earlier about fee-for-service and, and how might this work. Well, one of the ways that we removed conflict of interest was to make the organisation not-for-profit right from the start. So we operate a professional service and we require a professional fee-for-service um, to support that service. But we then take the proceeds and reinvest them in our philanthropic activities and really um, in three categories, people, projects and direct action initiatives. So in terms of people, you know, when we were early on, you know, I think our first donation was actually $30,000 for a, a small PhD um, travel scholarship fund that went to support PhD students um, in health and medical research. Nowadays, our flagship donation program is a five-year mid-career fellowship scheme um, that we run in conjunction with the Viettel Foundation, offering five-year supported career pathways to some of Australia's most talented health and medical researchers. So that's the Bellbury Viettel Fellowship? Correct, yes. Um, in terms of um, some of our other philanthropically supported Im improvement activities, probably one of the, the best known initiatives is a nationwide continuous improvement collaboration that we host called CTIQ. Um, CTIQ stands for Clinical Trials Impact and Quality um, and that collaboration really is a group of more than 60 like-minded organisations that all are working together with the shared goal of improving the quality, efficiency and effectiveness of research while protecting the interests of participants. I guess the other thing that you do, and uh, this happened in, in June of this year, and, and we'll hear more about this in the podcasts to come, was uh, bringing a, a whole load of people together uh, from across the world, from different perspectives, to actually really try and talk about and, and, and work through a complex issue. Tell us about that sort of work. Yeah, um, I mean, this actually goes back to you know, one of the reasons that I've always enjoyed working in the life sciences is the life sciences is a team sport, genuinely. There's no one individual or organisation that can take um, a health innovation from lab to life. Um, it is truly a team sport where we're not working against each other, actually, we're working together to move an idea through to a health innovation that actually makes a difference to patients. Um, and of course, you know, we think about the moment in the lab and you know, the discovery of a molecule. Um, we work through clinical trials where we're demonstrating um, safety and efficacy. We then go into stages of regulatory science and government policy where we're looking at things like cost effectiveness, access, equity, health distribution. Um, and of course, we're looking at all of those questions not only here in Australia, but health innovation is a global space. There are no borders um, in the work that we do. And so one of the things that we do with our global symposia is bring together representatives from the main perspectives playing in the team sport um, and, and 
and facing the challenge that we're putting on the table. So we've run a number of these with a variety of different topics. The one that we held this year was looking at the challenges associated with accelerated access. And so we've, we've, we have a, a proven methodology where we bring together clinicians, scientists, um, patient representatives and patient advocates. We bring together government representatives, regulators, um, payer agencies, um, and ethicists, of course. And, and we bring them together around the table for a supported conversation about what are the barriers to moving this issue forward? How, how can we work together across all of the stages of, of drug development to make a difference here? And that in some way speaks to the role that the organisation has. As I almost see it as a bit of an honest broker where it's, there's not an agenda that you're pushing, but you have the ability to draw all these parties together and sit them down in the same room. You've also got you know, some of the major uh, drug companies in there as well, and they're all having a conversation and, and actually perhaps having conversations that normally they would never have. Correct. As I say, this is a team sport where really the first stage, the first step in breaking through some of the barriers is actually by having open and honest conversations about, of course, what we're trying to achieve, um, and actually understanding where there are similarities and differences in what we're trying to achieve, where, the, where there are tensions between our perspectives. Because it's only really by identifying those tensions that we can then start to move forward with how we might mitigate and address them. Tell me about the sector more generally, what, what do you see? Here we are in, um, in 2023, looking forward. What do you see about uh, are the opportunities that are, that are there in the sector? So I think we're in a really interesting phase of um, the sector. I mean, as you've heard me say already, I think Australia has an incredibly strong foundation. We have a really good health system we have a great research community, we have a really strong reputation. Um, and in fact, we saw all of those things um, further strengthened through the COVID period. Um, so, I mean, to the outside world, it's perhaps not as obvious, but um, during the COVID period, when many other jurisdictions around the world were much more challenged than by COVID than, than Australia was, um, we saw you know, a growth in research in Australia through that time with international research placed here in Australia where, you know, for many parts of the country we had low or no COVID environments and could continue research through that time. Um, so we've got this really strong foundation that actually has been through a period of further growth and, and really we've seen, you know, even more awareness of Australian um, capabilities internationally. Um, and so that's a really strong foundation for where we go going forward. Um, I see great opportunities um, for the life sciences sector here um, ahead of us. What about on the other side of that? What are the challenges? What are the things that, you know, the, the wicked problems that people are, are grappling with at the moment? Um, sure. I mean, you know, the, it's always a double-sided coin, right? I mean, the other side to COVID, of course, is that we have emerged from a period where our health systems have been um, stretched and pressured. We have ongoing um, workforce issues. Um, 
we have um, some tensions in the health and care economy in terms of how we deliver the types of care that we want to deliver to the whole of the Australian population. Of course, there are other challenges ahead of us, such as climate-induced healthcare changes. But I think Australia has a strong foundation and a proven capability to face problems. So I believe we can, um, we can make those challenges, we can turn those challenges into opportunities. Is there anything from your position that you're looking at with keen interest in terms of developments in the, in the medical research sector where you're like, this is going to be really interesting to see where this goes? Sure. I, I mean, I think, as I mentioned, I, I see it as a huge privilege, actually, the, the insight that we have here through the research portfolio that we're responsible for into the developments that are coming ahead of us. And, and you know, the life sciences sector is never static. We're always looking at these kind of waves of technology that come through um, in health and medical research. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of coming through the wave of immunology, for example, in oncology treatment. Um, it's really exciting and there's still further developments to go in that space. Um, but if I look at the next horizon ahead, I'm just as excited for what's coming ahead. Um, we are seeing um, and will see incredible developments in cell therapies. We're seeing the first opportunities in gene therapies and, and we really, we have only kind of peaked under the cover of what's possible there. Um, I mean, going back to COVID, we've seen you know, a, a, you know, several years of really significant and consistent investment into vaccine technologies and, of course, new technologies like mRNA approaches. Um, and again, we're only just starting to see where those things might go in the future. One of the interesting things about, um, about vaccine approaches and, and mRNA approaches in particular is that while, of course, you know, publicly we think about those things associated with vaccines and infectious diseases, we will start to see those approaches um, adopted in non-infectious diseases. So we'll start to see those approaches um, trialled in areas of oncology um, and chronic disease um, that we can't even imagine right now. Um, then, of course, there are other areas like um, in the device space, we're going to see much more intersectionality. So we will see the interplay of medical devices with drugs, with data and software-driven interventions. Um, again, that's an entirely, kind of really entirely new field. Um, and finally, I should mention really health data and AI. Um, and once again, we're really on, you know, the very leading edge of a whole wave of development in that space. So it's a really incredibly exciting time ahead um, on a whole lot of fronts. I've asked you to look forward, now I want you to look back and tell me what's the difference that Belbury has made in this sector in the last 20 years? So the first thing I would say is that at Belbury we're always conscious it's not, it's not about us, it's about what's been facilitated by our service and our philanthropy. So you know there's really two sides to this I would say, you know we're incredibly proud of the research that has been facilitated through the service that we offer. You know, 10,000 studies, half of new drugs, 
6,000 researchers active in research that might otherwise not be. And that's been achieved while providing a robust protection for the safety and welfare of participants. And we're enormously proud of that service. Um, and then secondly, on the philanthropic side, you know, I'm hugely proud of this tribe of researchers, um, students, PhDs, fellows that have been supported to do work um, as a result of um, the research that's been provided to Belberry and the work of the Belberry community. Carly, it's been so good to be able to sit down and, and talk in depth about some of the work that Belberry's doing, but also how it came to be and hopefully people will, will gain some really useful insights. Final question, what excites you about the work that Belbury does? For me, I guess it's what, it's what I always come back to about the satisfaction that comes from working in the life sciences sector. Um, we have the opportunity to work with the most fantastic people while focusing on the excellence of the work that we do and really ultimately delivering a difference to patients and participants. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to our first episode of From Lab to Life. I'm Alison Rogers. Join us next time when we take you behind closed doors to find out what happens when a human research ethics committee meets. Coming to you on the 20th of October. This podcast was made possible by Belbury. Belbury.